Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, is there really a tree of life? Can we look at the evidence across the genome, across all these different kinds of animals and say they're all ancestrally related? Because some evolutionists will say, yeah, that we can see that. That's that should be undeniable. Is that really true? We're going to take a look at that question today and some other questions with my friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer. You know, Stephen's been on the show many times before. He's written so many seminal books in this area. The latest is called Return of the God Hypothesis. But before I bring Steve on, I want to play you a question that was asked, actually an answer to a question that was asked of Dr. Richard Dawkins, who, as you know, is a very prominent atheist and uh, evolutionist. A number of years ago, I think this goes back to about 2009, he was asked this question. The question was, is there one sentence, one piece of evidence that you could give to a creationist that should convince him that his view of macroevolution is wrong? Is there one sentence? Here is what Dr. Richard Dawkins said. Not sure about a, about a sentence. I think perhaps the single most convincing fact, the observation that you could point to would be the, um, the pattern of resemblances that you see when you compare the genes using modern DNA techniques, actually looking at the letter-to-letter -letter correspondences between genes. Compare the genes of any pair of animals you like, uh, pair of animals, pair of plants, and then plot out the resemblances and they fall in a perfect hierarchy, a perfect family tree. And the only alternative to it being a family tree is that the intelligent designer deliberately set out to deceive us in the most underhand and devious manner. Um, <laughs> more, moreover, the same thing works with, with every gene you do separately, and even pseudogenes that don't do anything but are vestigial relics of genes that once, that once did something. I find it extremely hard to imagine how any creationist who actually bothered to listen to that could possibly doubt the fact of evolution, but they don't listen. We don't listen, apparently, according to Dr. Dawkins, and a man who is very skilled in this area is Dr. Stephen Meyer. Steve, do you listen? Well, I definitely listen to people who have very beautiful Oxbr Oxbridge accents like <laughs> Professor Dawkins. But uh, having studied in Cambridge, one of the things I also learned that is that just because people speak with beautiful Oxbridge accents doesn't mean that they're always telling you the truth. Mm. And um, the, the, the quote, in fairness, the, the quote from Dawkins is from 2009, and there have been a host of studies that have come out in, uh, in the field of molecular evolution, molecular phylogeny, showing that this pattern that he uh, describes of a perfect tree is uh, is actually not the case. Here, here's here's what here's the backstory. What he's talking about is the way in which um, geneticists or uh, uh, evolutionary biologists can compare the sequence similarity of this of this, of the same genes in different organisms. So, 
um, humans and chimps, for example, both use uh, hemoglobin to capture molecular oxygen in our bloodstream. We can compare the sequences of the hemoglobin molecules or the genes that make the hemoglobin molecules in the two different organisms. And we can do that across a wide variety of, of uh, plants and animals, comparing the same genes to see how much they differ, how similar they or how similar they are. The more similarity, then it's assumed that the closer they are together on uh, a, a hypothetical family tree showing universal common ancestry, that all forms of life have evolved from simpler forms going back ultimately to some uh, one-celled organism. The degree of similarity in the gene sequences, uh, the higher degree of similarity, the closer they are related, and the less time has elapsed. Uh, it is assumed that therefore the, the less time has elapsed since the divergence point between those two, two organisms. Now, there's a number of things to say about this kind of analysis. First of all, when you put this data into the computer program, into the algorithms, the algorithms are programmed to spit out a tree, irrespective of what the evidence says. It's built in. So mm -hmm. the assumption is that the higher the degree of similarity, the closer the relationship, and the, and the shorter the amount of time since the point of divergence. That's just built into the, that's the, what's assumed in the algorithm. So you will get a tree of life showing universal common ancestry no matter what uh, data you put in, uh, however much the patterns of divergence or similarity are present. Second point, and this is where it's very, what, what Professor Dawkins is saying is, is, uh, is actually incorrect and quite, quite misleading. Um, if you put in a single, if you compare two organisms by looking at just a single molecule, you will get a nice clean tree because the program's uh, programmed to produce that. Mm. But if you compare different protein molecules, you very often get dramatically uh, conflicting trees. And so you get these strange anomalies where organisms that, according to the fossil record, uh, look to have diverged either a very long time ago or a short time ago, uh, are diverging at very different points according to the molecular data. And, the, and so the molecule, the molecular analysis of the two different genes, uh, of different organisms analyzing one molecule, will, will conflict with the same kind of analysis using another molecule, using another protein. So the problem there is that we can't have more than one history. Uh, right. life, if life evolved mm -hmm. from a common ancestor, it did it in a particular way once. And you, there are multiple now examples of these, of these conflicting trees when we compare, uh, compare analyses based on molecules, when we do analyses comparing molecules to anatomy, and uh, when we compare an anatom different anatomical characters to other anatomical characters. So if we look at the similarities in bone structure in, one, in, in, a, in a group of animals and then look at, uh, at similarities in different organs, organs, we'll get conflicting trees all over again. Now, in my book, Darwin's Doubt, I um, have a whole chapter on this problem. It's chapter six of Darwin's Doubt, and cite a number of very uh, recent papers uh, establishing that you have this conflicting tree problem. So that's the second, the second thing to say. First of all, the, the, it's a, it's a, the, the programs are, uh, the algorithms are programmed to produce trees. So there's no, there's no way you couldn't get such a picture, okay? Secondly, if we analyze 
different molecules or different anatomical systems, we get conflicting trees. Third okay. problem, it's a problem known as orphan genes. And that is, there are now many genes being discovered across the, higher, across the phylogenetic hierarchy, across the different types of organisms that are um, absolutely unique. They show no known similarity they show no similarity to any other known genes. Hmm. Now, on a Darwinian schema, every gene should have evolved from some other gene in a gradual mm -hmm. way, so they get little letter-by-letter -letter differences accumulating over time. But we have more and more examples of these completely anomalous genes that n show no known sequence similarity. Sometimes those, uh, those anomalies are within small taxonomic groups like species, other times they show up at the higher level of genus or family or order or, or beyond, uh, all the way up to the phyla. But these genes should not exist on a Darwinian tree of life model of the history of life. Every gene should have similarity to something else. And to have these genes that are uh, completely anomalous, it would be like having a line of Shakespeare in a book about cosmology. Um, mm. And you know, that it, they just don't fit. There's no similarity to anything right. else around them. And this, this, it, it, so if similarity is evidence of common ancestry, what is dramatic disparity evidence of? Mm, that suggests yeah. it, it suggests separate origins. So this is not at all the clear picture that Professor Dawkins paints. And I would submit that it's actually he who is not listening. To He's the not evidence. listening. Well, we're going to see what else we can talk about. Regarding this topic, right after the break, we have other topics we're going to talk about, not just the tree of life, but also fine-tuning and a few other things, so don't go away. We're talking to the great Dr. Stephen Meyer, his newest book, Return of the God Hypothesis, you need to get if you don't have it already. Don't go anywhere. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in just two minutes. The absolutely best course available to be able to articulate with power and clarity your pro-life convictions is now available. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You will see that it's coming up here. I believe it starts October 4th. It's led by the great Scott Klusendorf, who I think is the top pro-life apologist in the country. He will teach you how to make the case for the unborn and deal with this, just about every kind of objection you might get to that. And as you know, nationally, this is coming to a, a debate here with the Texas abortion law and many other laws that are coming down the road to the Supreme Court, including a, a law from, uh, from uh, the state of Mississippi. So you're going to want to be schooled on this matter. Don't miss out on the premium version where you are going to be with Scott live on several Zoom meetings to ask questions of Scott and your fellow uh, classmates. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and you will see that course there. Let me go back to my friend, Stephen Meyer. Steve, just before the break, you were talking about three reasons to doubt what Dr. Dawkins said was true. Just summarize those three reasons again, and then I'm going to ask you to steel man the best argument for macroevolution. Go ahead. Well, yeah, he wants to say that the sequence similarity between uh, same genes and different organisms provides the basis for reconstructing the history of life, and that when you do that reconstruction, what is... Uh, inevitably produced is a beautiful branching tree pattern suggesting that the trunk of the tree is the the source of all life mm -hmm. so that everything has morphed and changed from one simple one-celled organism and developed into all the forms of life we see today in a continuous way that's the theory of universal common descent and what i uh 
um, summarized in the in the, the somewhat long answer before the break was that there are three reasons to doubt that. First of all, the the, the algorithms that analyze those data are programmed to produce trees irrespective of what data are put into them. So mm -hmm. the the tree is an it is an inevitable consequence, but okay. not of of the evidence itself, but rather of the way in which the evidence is being analyzed. And they're assuming and what they're trying to prove. Well, right? absolutely. Yeah. Se secondly. Um, when you do those same analyses on different molecules, uh, if you analyze, uh, a, say, a protein hemoglobin or you get one tree, if you mm -hmm. look at the sequence similarities in the protein cytochrome C or some other protein, you very often get other trees. Mm -hmm. And so you get these conflicting trees mm -hmm. based on which proteins you choose. And, that, and all the trees can't be, they can't all be right. right. Mm -hmm. because there's only one history of life. Mm -hmm. And the conflicting trees is actually a mark of design systems, which we, we could explain in more detail. Sure, yeah. And you get the same type of co conflict between um, an, an, a, when you do an analysis of anatomical characters as opposed to, to protein molecules. So those are, you get conflicts between molecules, conflicts between when you compare molecules and anatomical characters, and you even get conflicts when you compare different anatomical characters. Um, and I, I document all of this in uh, the sixth chapter of my book, Darwin's Doubt, mm -hmm. and I'd recommend that people who really want to dive into it uh, mm -hmm. do a deeper dive there. As to your second question, I'll take it out of your mouth because I know what you're going to ask. What's the strongest argument for, mm -hmm. for uh, universal common ancestry, sometimes also called macroevolution? Mm -hmm. um, it is, in fact, this argument we've been talking about. It is not the strongest argument for uh, large-scale macroevolutionary change and a universal tree of life is not from the fossil record. The fossil record shows profound discontinuities, especially at the level of the what are called the higher taxonomic categories. The big divisions of life at phyla, class, and order uh, show dramatic uh, and abrupt, uh, uh, they show dr dramatic discontinuity, the abrupt appearance of major groups of animals uh, and, and plants without uh, discernible ancestors in the lower strata it, beneath their first appearance. So the fossil record has, is not actually providing strong evidence. What uh, modern neo-Darwinists repair to is precisely the argument that Dawkins just made, that well, we can't see the c connections in the fossil record, but we see it in these, um, these, these gra this gradual uh, morphing and and we, we see it in these close similarity between different uh, between the same genes and different organisms, and we can see the gradual morphing in the in the in the gene sequences. But in in fact, we do not see that. We we actually see now very dramatic evidence of discontinuity in genomics as we're discovering what are called orphan genes, genes that lack sequence similarity to to other genes in other uh, presumably related organisms. So. The picture is not nearly as clear as Dawkins and colleagues make out, and instead I think we see profound evidence of discontinuity both in the fossil record and in genomic analyses. Friends, we've talked about this concept before. In fact, I talk about it in our book, Stealing from God, that science doesn't say anything scientists do because all data needs to be gathered, all data needs to be interpreted. And yes, you could interpret the data in a macroevolutionary way, as Steve has been saying. The problem is, if you do that, you're going to run into to other problems that, that don't add up to this universal tree of common ancestry. Uh, Steve, you have also addressed the question, and let me ask you this question, because I've heard this as another reason to maybe suggest 
macroevolution is true, and that is the idea that there are broken genes in the same spot in different animals, and we would have to say that they're ancestrally related. Otherwise, are we going to say that an intelligent designer put those broken genes in the same spot in species that were not related? How would you respond to that? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm giving you the wrong uh, characterization of the problem. No, no, you, you, you've I... described it really accurately. Okay. Um, uh, and it would be a good argument uh, if it were known to, to be true. Okay, but uh, many of the genes that were allegedly pseudogenes, that it, this, this was the idea of a broken genes that are no longer functional, and, and Dawkins alluded to that in his answer or in his in his clip. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that uh, many of the claims about non-functionality associated with these quote unquote pseudogenes ha- are now obsolete. That the the mm. that these genes, like many other sections of the genome which were dubbed junk, have turned out to be importantly functional, and so yeah, it would be very surprising to find broken genes that exhibited the kind of sequence similarity that indicated common ancestry, uh, because in that case you couldn't argue that the sequence similarity was the product of uh, of a common designer. Why would the designer make two similar things that were not functional? That it would be a good argument if the factual predicate were solid. But mm. it's increasingly looking not to be solid. And that, that pseudogenes that have been cited as examples of this kind of uh, non-functional, genes that have been cited as examples of pseudogenes are turning out to be functional just as much or perhaps the overwhelming preponderance of the the, the so-called junk DNA has done. So um, it, was a, it, it, it was an argument that seemed to have force about the time Francis Collins used it in his book, um, The, uh, language, the, the of language of God. I was just going to ask you that yeah. because my, my question was my question was going to be, Steve, did Francis Collins not know this when he wrote Language of God? That, that, these, that these so-called broken genes or junk DNA wasn't really junk. This was areas well, of the genome that did something. You know, I don't know about the exact timing of that, but he, Collins has had his name on papers that have come out uh, since then, uh-huh. establishing the functionality of, the, of, 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 of junk DNA. Okay. So he should now know, he should know now that, that right. this is a bad argument. So. No, I remember reading that book, Language of God, and that was one of his biggest arguments, that these broken genes wouldn't have been put there by an intelligent designer. Of course, he's making a theological point there, too. Uh, wouldn't have been put there by a, an intelligent designer, but what you're saying now is we no longer think that those were actually broken genes. They actually have function, correct? Uh, more and more and more of them are shown to have function. So this is, this is a case where it's a kind of materialism of the gaps or a, a, a Darwinism of the gaps. We're going we're gonna to assume that they don't have function, and then we've got a, we've got a pretty good argument against the creationists or, the, or in mm-hmm. my case, the intelligent design proponent uh, who is skeptical of universal common descent. And not, not all ID people are skeptical of universal common descent, but I am. Um, and, and in any case, the point is that that one by one, we're finding evidence of these uh, pseudogenes. Uh, these, these, these alleged pseudogenes are not pseudo at all. They're performing important functions. So would it be fair to say that for people like Dawkins and other evolutionists, uh, the reason they're not open to any sort of intelligent design argument is because they philosophically ruled out that possibility before they even look at the evidence. Do you think that's what's going on here? Uh, many of the evolutionary biologists will 
uh, say, yeah, well, the, our view is based on evidence, but they will also, uh, at some other time or out of the other side of their mouths, insist that it's not scientific to consider anything but um, a, a purely undirected materialistic explanation. And they will affirm a principle known as methodological naturalism, mm -hmm. which says that if you're going to be a scientist, you have to limit your uh, possible theories to theories that affirm strictly materialistic processes or, or theoretical postulates or entities. That means that, in other words, you can't consider intelligent design as an explanation, however much you might see evidence of design. Mm -hmm. And here's a good example of that with Dawkins. Recently, he, he tweeted uh, that he was knocked sideways with wonder at the intricacy of the data processing machinery inside the living cell. Now, Dawkins has also said that um, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Mm -hmm. um, I would submit this is an, an example of him not listening or, or seeing what, what the I evidence mean. most clearly yeah. says. He's not, knocked sideways with wonder at the intricacy of the data processing machinery inside the living cell. He's also said the gene, the gene is uncannily, uh, it's, it's like a machine cone, it's uncannily computer-like. Um, and uh, well, we know from experience that that digital code, machine code, comes from programmers, and the basis of all scientific reasoning is our uniform and repeated experience. So why shouldn't we consider the possibility, at least consider the possibility, that that digital uh, information and the digital information processing capability inside living cells is actually the product of a master programmer? Uh, that's what our uniform and repeated experience would most naturally lead us to consider, even to conclude. And but that's out of bounds for the contemporary evolutionary biologists who have adopted the principle of methodological naturalism. So I do think there is an a priori assumption about what kind of answer scientists must come to uh, that that governs and and controls the the the, the, the debate. Steve, right after the break, I'm going to ask you the question that Dawkins was asked, but from a different angle. What would be the one sentence that you think, or the one piece of evidence that you think an evolutionist or an atheist ought to consider that intelligent design is true? But we're going to do that right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. My name is Frank Turek. My guest today is Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, author of several seminal books, including Signature in the Cell, Darwin's Doubt, and the newest book, which just came out just a few months ago, called Return of the God Hypothesis, three scientific discoveries revealing the mind behind the universe. In fact, we're going to talk about two more of them right after the break, because Steve has had some recent articles in both the Jerusalem Post and the New York Post dealing with this issue. So don't go anywhere. Uh, we've got two more segments with Dr. Stephen Meyer, and we'll be back with him in just two minutes. So see you then. Don't go anywhere. Is there really a tree of life? We covered that in the first two segments, and we're going to look at what could be behind the incredibly, at least it appears to be designed, thing we call life, and also the fine-tuning of the universe with my friend Dr. Stephen Meyer. Steve, the question that Dr. Dawkins was asked is, what's the one sentence that should cause someone who's a creationist or an intelligent design people, a person, to uh, to actually believe in macroevolution. Let me reverse the question and ask you, what is the one piece of evidence you would present to someone like Dr. Dawkins to say, no, it really appears intelligent design is true? I would quote uh, 
Bill Gates, saying the DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Mm. Or Dawkins saying that the machine code of the genes is unca uncannily computer-like. We know from our uniform and repeated experience that information, especially in a digital or alphabetic form, always comes from an intelligent source. So the discovery of digital information at the foundation of life in even the very simplest living cells is powerful evidence of the activity of a designing intelligence in the origin and history of life. Now, Steve, you have had several high-profile debates, many of which you can see on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, with atheists who uh, you challenge them on this very point about the, the, the digital code that we find in life. I know you've debated Peter Ward. You've debated, uh, is, is it Peter Ward? Or it's Peter Atkins. Peter Atkins. Yeah, that was uh, a fun one on yeah, the Peter BBC. Peter Atkins, <laughs> Michael Ruse, and was yeah. it Peter Ward? Peter or, Ward, Michael Ruse, uh, uh, Lawrence Krauss, uh, how did Eugenie they deal? Scott. What was the most cogent response to you saying, look, in all our repeated experience, whenever you see a code, it comes from a coder. Whenever you see a program, it always comes from a programmer. Whenever you see digital code, it comes from a mind. How did they respond to that? Well, interestingly, especially if, if, if you make this argument as it pertains to the question of the origin of the first life. Mm -hmm. um, Interestingly, leading evolutionary biologists, including Dawkins himself, will acknowledge that we have no explanation from a materialistic evolutionary point of view for the origin of life. And they may even acknowledge that the main reason for that is that we haven't been able to explain the origin of the information that's in DNA and RNA that makes life possible. Okay. Um, in the film Expelled, um, mm -hmm. that was released 2008, I think, several years right. ago, uh, in a concluding interview, Dawkins. Uh, acknowledged to Ben Stein that, that, quote, no one knows how life first began. And he even acknowledged that we may be looking at a signature of intelligence inside the living cell. Mm. But of course, Dawkins did not attribute that. Uh, if, if indeed we are, he said that, that wouldn't be uh, the, po the, the product of a of any kind of transcendent designing intelligence. It must have been, it might have been designed, however, by some alien intelligence that seeded uh, some simple form of life to earth uh, after that intelligence evolved, but he said by purely explicable natural processes somewhere else. So he basically kicked the problem of the origin of life, not down the road, <laughs> but out into space and uh, <laughs> okay. without answering where the information would have come from uh -huh. to get life going on that planet, which would have then produced an evolutionary process or then, then kicked off an evolutionary process that would have produced uh, a, an advanced form of intelligence capable of of designing the life that was seeded to this the, the, this planet so well you cover that actually in a new york post of all places article that you did back on july 17th of this year 2021 the title of it is why god is still the best scientific theory to explain our life on earth. Now, I know it's going to be hard to summarize the whole article, but why is God still the best well, explanation? Well, uh, we've already sort of alluded to part of the answer, uh -huh. and that is that, that positing, the alt, the, the, if you're looking at evidence of intelligence and statements such as the ones that I cited in the last segment from Dawkins, that he's knocked sideways with wonder mm -hmm. at the intricacy of the data processing machinery inside the living cells. And he actually linked to an animation of this incredible process by which the, the digital code and DNA is replicated and uh, 
uh, and also used to direct protein synthesis. It's, it's extraordinary. We have an animation on my one of my websites called Journey Inside the Cell, which shows this process. So it's not just that we've got code inside life. It's the code is doing something. It's being it's stored, transmitted and processed in order to produce the the protein structures that are necessary to keep all cells alive. It's extraordinary. Um, so a lot of people, so it, it happens, and I, I was writing in July, we were getting these uh, new news reports about the, uh, the, the uh, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena coming out. The Navy released its report. And I pointed out that it's not just uh, uh, UFO enthusiasts who've been talking about extraterrestrial intelligence, it's actually scientists. And they've been mm -hmm. doing it for now almost with Francis Crick, goes back to the early 1980s. Mm. And they've been doing that because they've recognized this signature of intelligence inside life, but they don't want to attribute it to a, a, a divine or transcendent intelligence. And so they've postulated an alien intelligence as the explanation for these design-like features that we see in living cells, even the simplest living cells. Uh, here's the two problems with that. First, it, the positing an alien designer just ends up pushing the, the, the ultimate question of the origin of life and the origin of the information necessary to produce it out into space without answering the question. Mm. If chemistry and physics don't explain code, if they don't explain where code comes from, and, and to say that they do would be like saying that the bonding between ink and paper explains the arrangement of the, of the characters in a newspaper headline. Clearly something else is at work. It's not just chemistry that's responsible for the information right. in the headline. Uh, there was an editor, a writer. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if that doesn't work on planet Earth, there's no reason to suspect that explaining the origin of information by underlying chemical processes of evolution will, exp will explain it anywhere else. So it doesn't actually solve this problem that most need solving, which is what explains the origin of information. But secondly, there's something else. You've got two competing design hypotheses now. The transcendent intelligence, aka God hypothesis, or the... Um, alien designer hypothesis. There's another whole class of evidence that the, that the alien designer hypothesis definitely can't explain. And that is the evidence of the fine tuning of the universe that's present from the very beginning or very soon after. Um, and, and which is necessary to, the fine tuning that's necessary for life to exist in the universe at all. Clearly no being within the cosmos that arose long after the beginning of the universe could, could explain the, how those fine-tuning parameters were set. No being within the cosmos could explain the fine-tuning of the physical universe that's built into the very fabric of the universe from the beginning. To explain that, you need a, an intelligence that transcends the universe, that can affect the universe as a whole from the beginning, and therefore a transcendent intelligence, uh, a.k.a. the God hypothesis, I think provides a much better explanation for the fine-tuning than any alien designer, any imminent designer within the cosmos, an alien or otherwise. By the way, friends, this is not a God of the gaps argument. It is often charged because Stephen here is not arguing from what he doesn't know. He's arguing from what he does know. Uh, it's not just that we lack a natural explanation for the digital code in the living thing. We know that digital code always comes from a mind. And as Steve just pointed out, there's no way that you can get a natural cause for all of nature. If the universe itself came into existence out of nothing, then whatever did that and whatever fine-tuned it to be so has to be outside of space, matter, and time. So you're getting to a being like God, but we don't know if it's the Christian God. Biology and fine-tuning doesn't get you to the Christian God. It might be the Christian God. 
It could be Allah or some other theistic being, but or maybe a deistic being. You have to look at the resurrection to see if the being that created the universe is really the Christian God or not. And when you do look at the resurrection and you realize Jesus did rise from the dead, then you can say that the same being that created the universe and the, the fine-tuned the universe and designed life is the Christian God. By the way, I need to say this because it is the week of 9-11. 9-11 was 20 years ago today. I can remember where I was and what I was doing that day, and if you're old enough, you can too, which should tell you something about the testimony we see in the New Testament. The New Testament testimony was written down within 20 to 25 years, particularly 1 Corinthians 15, of the event. Eyewitnesses would have remembered a resurrection. They would have had no trouble remembering that. If you can remember a building coming down on a traumatic day, you can also remember that Jesus rose from the dead. You would never forget that if he really did rise from the dead. And these people had no reason to make that up. They actually believed Jesus rose from from the dead, and they paid with their lives for that. All right, let me go back to Steve. You also have an article in the Jerusalem Post about Steven Weinberg. Tell us about Weinberg and what you said in this article, which is dated August 14th of 2021. Well, Weinberg was a, a great physicist, uh, one of the founders of uh, what's called the standard model of particle physics, um, and he, for which he received the Nobel Prize. Uh, Weinberg was also one of the most outspoken scientific atheists and is famous for saying that the more the universe is comprehensible, meaning to our science, the more it also seems pointless. And uh, his scientific atheism, (laughs) therefore, uh, tended towards almost a kind of nihilism. And I think it's uh, uh, an interesting aspect of the modern uh, debate now that uh, this form of, of aggressive scientific atheism, I think, is on the wane. And so the title of my article, The Jerusalem Post, was the, um, Stephen Weinberg in the Twilight of a Godless Universe. I think more and more, the kinds of arguments that we've been talking about, the evidence, uh, and I, I, I cited three big scientific discoveries. The universe had a beginning. The universe has been finely tuned from the beginning or soon thereafter. And then long after the beginning, we have seen big explosions of digital information arising in our Earth's biosphere, making new forms of life possible, which, by the way, I think precludes a deistic interpretation. Uh, A deistic Mm. god only acts at the beginning, not long after. Uh, So I think neither the space alien hypothesis nor the deistic Mm -hmm. uh, designer hypothesis explains the evidence as well as classical theism. And you're right, uh, the kind of arguments I'm making in the book uh, provide basis for a... uh, uh, for they 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 provide support for basic theism, but not uh, they don't help adjudicate the question of which form of theism is is most likely to be true. Uh, but Weinberg thought all forms of theism were wrong, and um, and was a kind of committed scientific atheist. And the irony is that he used anthropic reasoning to help define one of the most exqu- the, the 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 degree of fine tuning associated with one, one of the most exquisitely finely tuned parameters something called the cosmological constant uh, he also wrote a book called the first 3 minutes which was all about the evidence of uh, that we have that helps us reconstruct what was going on just after the big bang but as i pointed out in the jerusalem post article the one thing that weinberg did despite his brilliant exposition of the first 3 minutes of the universe uh, was he, the one thing he couldn't do was explain what had caused the universe to begin. Mm. Because uh, if matter, space, time, and energy come into existence at a finite time ago, then prior to that, or independent of that, there is no matter to do the causing. So materialistic explanations are out. 
and yet he was a staunch materialist. Exactly. You can't have a natural cause when nature itself is the effect. So uh, we're going to have another segment with Dr. Stephen Meyer and talk about a little bit about academic freedom right after the break. Uh, you'll see why here in just a second, so don't go away. I'm Frank Turk, back in two. You may have seen in the news this week, ladies and gentlemen, a professor from Portland State University resigned his position because of the intolerance of what was going on in the university and from the university faculty and even the students when he tried to teach the free exchange of ideas. His name is Dr. Peter Bogosian. Now that name may be familiar to you because Peter is an atheist who wrote a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists a number of years ago. It's sort of like the atheist equivalent to Greg Kokel's tactics book. You know, how can we ask people questions to get them to become atheists? But Bergosian in recent years has become so frustrated with leftism on his campus that he actually started going to campuses with the head of Ratio Christi, which is a Christian group on campus that does apologetics headed by Corey Miller. So Peter and Corey would go around to these universities and really talk about freedom of speech and academic freedom. Well, it just bubbled over to such a point this past week that he resigned from Portland State University, and you need to read his resignation letter. We don't have time to read it all here, but if you type in Peter Bogosian resignation letter, you will be able to find oh, this letter, and you ought to read it. I just want to read two quick paragraphs and get a commentary from uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer on this because there's implications not only for academic freedom and peer review, but there's also an implication or something going on here that a new religion is being formed. As the old atheism is dying, there's a new religion being formed. Anyway, here is what he says in the middle of his letter. He says, I never once believed, nor do I now, nor, nor do I do now, that the purpose of instruction was to lead my students to a particular conclusion. Rather, I sought to create the conditions for rigorous thought to help them gain the tools to, get, uh, to hunt and Pharaoh for their own conclusions. This is why I became a teacher and why I love teaching. But brick by brick, the university, and here he's talking about Portland State University in Oregon, the university has made this kind of intellectual exploration impossible. It has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into a social justice factory whose only inputs were race, gender and victimhood and whose only outputs get this i think this is brilliant whose only outputs were grievance and division that's peter bogosian and his name if you want to spell it and you ought to spell it and uh, find this letter peter bogosian is b-o-g-h-o-s-s-i-a-n b-o-g-h-o-s-s-i-a-n dr stephen meyer how do you react to this well, we, we certainly have a lot of sympathy for people who have been bitten by this uh, academic cancel culture. Uh, I think you and I were talking before we started the program, and mm -hmm. uh, um, <clears throat> the uh, scientists ad advocating intelligent design were uh, were canceled before getting canceled was cool. And mm -hmm. so we, we know something about this. Uh, I had an experience of this, albeit somewhat indirectly, in 2004. I wrote a peer-reviewed article for the uh, proceedings of the biological 
Society of Washington, the oldest peer-reviewed biology journal in America. It was edited by one of the Smithsonian senior scientists, uh, Richard Sternberg. Uh, Sternberg uh, sent the paper out for peer review. It was uh, 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 eventually approved after process of some revisions. And uh, once it was published, it was advocating the theory of intelligent design as an explanation for the what I call the Cambrian information explosion, the information that was necessary to build the Cambrian animals, which emerged so abruptly in the fossil record. Uh, <clears throat> it was one of the first peer-reviewed articles advancing intelligent design. And about a week after it was published, the lid came off of the Smithsonian. And uh, uh, there were, there were uh, calls for Sternberg's resignation. There were emergency meetings of the council that oversaw the publication of the journal. Sternberg, though he was the editor, was told he should not come to the meetings because tempers <laughs> were running so high that the, uh, uh, the uh, chairman of the society that oversaw the journal uh, told him he couldn't guarantee his personal safety. Sternberg was transferred uh, away from the supervision of a, of a friendly older scientist that he worked with for years to, to an office next door to museum administrators so they could keep an eye on him. He was denied access to his scientific samples. He couldn't get into his office. Eventually, he was uh, uh, demoted and um, and, and people tried to get him fired from the National Institutes of Health, where he had a jo joint appointment. It took a senator to intervene to save his job. So this is just one example. We've had numerous examples of mm -hmm. this sort of thing, of scientists challenging the dominant Darwinian narrative in the natural sciences and, and scientists who go as far as to... At that point, Sternberg was not a proponent of intelligent design. He was kind of an open-minded skeptic. He was a structural biologist. Uh, he was an advocate of something called structuralism, which is a non-Darwinian take on biology. So he was interested in airing out this, this discussion. Uh, I think now he is quite sympathetic to intelligent design. Um, and uh, But this is one of many cases that we've that our team of scientists have experienced uh, of the same type of phenomenon. So we sympathize very much with Professor uh, Bogosian. And you had mentioned also when we were talking before that there's got to be something that's going to fill the vacuum if atheism isn't going to be the predominant campus religion or at least cultural. Uh, there's something else going to, what's, what's filled the vacuum now? What, what, what is this cultural Marxism? Well, <clears throat> what's going on, Steve? Yeah. Um, I actually think the the big vacuum has been created by the loss of theistic belief in, in, yes. the, in the academic culture. And mm -hmm. in place of that, all sorts of different, um, secular, atheistic, uh, materialistic ideologies are rushing in to fill it. And one form of, uh, one of those ideological thought forms, if you will, is what's called cultural Marxism. And there's a really interesting history about this. It goes back to the 1930s when leading Marxist intellectuals realized that they couldn't get the standard form of Marxism to sell. It wasn't taking root in Western countries that were, even by that time, uh, had too wide a middle class to adopt the sense that the working class were permanent victims and they were being oppressed by the bourgeois. Uh, so the bourgeois proletariat sort of narrative where uh, people who were property owners were oppressing those who weren't, wasn't taking root. And so what many of the Marxist intellectuals did was reformulate Marxist doctrine. And as a part of that, they wanted to look for new victim groups and new oppressor groups. And the multiplication of oppressor groups as part of the ideology was part of what, what cultural Marxism was all about. And so that's why there's this tremendous emphasis on identity. Uh, there's, there's one overriding oppressor group, 
and then all of the other groups uh, can claim uh, can claim victim status on the basis of not being part of that or that um, uh, that, that group, group that's yeah. assumed to be yeah. oppressing. Yeah. And yeah. of course, there is a history of oppression of uh, African Americans in, sure. in this country in the 1930s. We still had Jim Crow, so some of these claims were were quite plausible when they were first created but now it's now every you know oh you just keep dividing people into smaller and smaller groups and everybody has a claim to victim status except some few people who are fingered as being inherently morally evil because of their their racial or uh, gender or other identities so it's this identity politics that sometimes mm -hmm. people talk about but it, it flows from a, a discernible ideology known as cultural marxism and it, it, it is it is a kind of religion in its own right. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I think P Professor Bedrosian is objecting to is that it brooks no dissent. Um, mm. you, you have to you ha it, it, it certainly should have a place in the academic conversation, along with other ideologies vying uh, for ascendancy in the marketplace of ideas. But what's happened is and what his complaint is that it's the only ideology that's allowable. And uh, certainly theism has long been uh, seen as a, a verboten topic on many universities uh, but even older forms of atheism uh, the sort of rationalist form of atheism that would uh, allow for uh, he, he sounds like a classical liberal or um, a libertarian and mm -hmm. uh, that, that's no longer welcome either so I think he's objecting to something that's uh, uh, very much against the educational pro project which requires a certain amount of intellectual pluralism in order to thrive and uh, so it's concerning for sure. Yeah, and just for the record, Peter Bogosian is a white, heterosexual, atheist professor who considers himself politically liberal, and he, even he can't tolerate the intolerance going on on campus right now. So I highly recommend that you go read that letter and uh, send it around to other people. I hope uh, Peter gets some other sort of gig somewhere because at least he's intellectually honest enough to say we have to have the free exchange of ideas so we can follow the truth where it leads. And that's all the intelligent design people have been saying. <laughs> that's what you've been saying, Steve. That's what so many in the, in the intelligent design uh, community have been, say, been saying. Can we just follow the, the evidence where it leads? Well, and, and it's also inherent to our, our both our educational proce uh, project and the way in which we make the case. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a, uh, there's a wonderful philosopher of science in Italy named Marcello Perra, who argues that science, is adva science advances as scientists argue about mm -hmm. how to interpret the evidence. There yes. isn't the science, there isn't a, always a consensus. Sometimes there's a consensus, but right. usually if there's a consensus, you don't appeal to consensus to settle an issue. You only appeal to mm -hmm. consensus to settle an issue when there is an issue and when there are dissenting <laughs> scientists who need to be silenced. Well said. So yeah. you need to be very careful when you hear those words consensus or settled science or the science. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, Perra's observation about the advance of science having this rhetorical, necessary rhetorical dimension where scientists have the freedom to argue about how to interpret the evidence and even to argue about what the evidence is, is very important. And I, I as I've studied the philosophy of science, there's a, a method of reasoning, certainly Darwin used and many great scientists have used, it's called the method of multiple competing hypotheses. You've got a body of evidence, and now you want to figure out what it means. And different scientists will put forward different hypotheses about how to interpret it and what would follow if their hypothesis were, tr were, were true or correct. And in making my case for intelligent design, I follow that method rather scrupulously by presenting all the alternative points of view. And I uh, intentionally critique them 
as I go, I, I present them, I hope as fairly as I, I can, uh, representing the positions as their proponents themselves would represent them. And then I provide my critique, and then I provide my positive rationale for the hypothesis that I favor. So you, you gotta, that's part of science. You gotta that's do right. that if you're gonna get closer to the truth. All right, friends, go to returnofthegodhypothesis.com. Returnofthegodhypothesis.com. There are interviews up there. There are debates up there. There are videos up there. And, of course, you can get the book up there, too. Steve, it's always great having you on. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right, that's returnofthegodhypothesis.com, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget about the new pro-life course coming up. Go to crossexamine.org, and I will see you here next week. God bless.